0: Summer
1: had been warmer than usual this year, but the heat that throbbed in the East Bay was already coaxing pale fingers of fog into the city. Anna could feel this on her skin, the chilly caress she had come to think of as candle weather. She had not owned a fireplace since her landlady days on Russian Hill, but to her mind the proper application of candlelight carried all the primal comfort of a campfire. She grabbed the purple plastic firelighter on the sideboard in the parlor. Her legs, however, weren't cooperating, so she steadied herself for a moment, slouching ludicrously on one hip, like Joan Crawford in 1940's gun mall mode. This thing in her wobbly old hand was disturbingly gun-like, complete with a trigger and a barrel. Mustn't think of it as a gun. Think of it as a wand."
0: Armistead Maupin is the author of the nine-volume Tales of the City series. His other books include Maybe the Moon and the Night Listener. His new book, the final volume in the Tales of the City series, is The Days of Madrigal. Thank you for joining me, Armistead. Nice
1: to be here, Rick.
0: There's a feeling of grace throughout all of these books, from the very beginning to the very end. And this book, I think, encapsulates that and recapitulates that and works that through and brings us to an ending that's really beautiful.
1: Thank you very much. I've tried for that grace from the very beginning. It's been tough because I had to kind of fake as if I knew where it was going for the last 40 years. But I tried to give each, each of the nine books their own shape, uh, have them stand alone and yet connect. And, of course, the the last novel, The Days of Madrigal was the biggest challenge of all because I had to land the plane on the aircraft carrier, as it were. Um, I was very concerned about it, so the reviews have been gratifying um, because most of them, in fact all of them, have said that uh, it was the perfect ending. I was fighting uh, a lot the resistance on the part of readers for me to stop, uh, especially when the stop seemed to indicate that Mrs. Madrigal herself was coming to an end.
0: You know, uh, it, one of the things that I think about these books when I read them was the beauty of fiction as a means of reporting on real life. And this is something you've been doing from the beginning. It's a very Dickensian uh, mode. And I think these, all these books really get, make you the San Francisco's uh, Charles Dickens and in that kind of journalistic reporting of real life in the city. Again, thank you. <laughs> um,
1: I don't know if I can own that completely, but uh, I did try to 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 capture the flavor of what was going on around me. I realized that's where a lot of the color was going to come from, and I was lucky because I started out in 1976 in a time that was very, very vivid, and uh, there was a lot of materials, especially stuff that had to do with uh, LGBT life in the city, which didn't even have initials, much less an identity in those days those things were ripe for the picking because nobody was talking about it
0: you know as i the other thing i think that as we read those stories from 40 years ago now the they seem like historical fiction not fiction that was written at the time, but was written out of time. And I think that must have been a hard thing for the young Armistead to to do, to pull yourself out of time like that.
1: I, I don't know. Maybe I've always had a, an eye on myself in some way. I think I've always had an ironic distance and I could see what silliness was going on while it was happening and record it. But a lot of it was just luck, you know, just luck. And and I, and I got a sense of the rhythm of it as, as I went on with it. Um, and writing as I did in a daily newspaper in those early days, I got information from, from readers. People would write in and say, oh, you really should be talking about the single scene down at the, at the laundromat at the corner of Lombard and Fillmore. <laughs> and, and so I'd go down there and discover to my amazement that the place was actually called the Come Clean Center. And think, this is just too perfect. I, it was waiting for me to write about.
0: You know, uh, as you crafted these characters, you, you created this large cast of characters who have just lived with us through all the, these decades. And this must have been a very interesting experience for you because they came alive for millions of readers. They must have come alive for you. And you've had these two live parallel lives.
1: I have, and I've grown old with them. <clears throat> you know, I, I'd actually think, oh, well, she can't possibly be that old. And I'd say, well, yes, she can, because you're that old. Or, How could their ch- child be 30 years old? Well, that because that child was born in Tales of the City. Uh, so it was uh, a question of simply trying to be true to myself, to my own uh, knowledge of myself and of the world around me as I went along.
0: Now, uh when you started out at the paper, did you have any intention of writing nonfiction, or did you just say, I've got some stories I want to tell? Initially, I was writing for
1: The Pacific Sun. I wrote a weekly uh, serial for The Pacific Sun. It only lasted five weeks and uh, because the San Francisco edition of The Pacific Sun did not survive. But I was trying to write about the, the, the heterosexual cruising scene at the Marina Safeway, which I'm told goes on to this very day, amazes me. <laughs> Maybe they're standing there with their, their iPhones, you know, uh, checking out the you know, checking out the details on the people in the store, but they're still doing it, they say. And, uh, and I went down there trying to write a nonfiction story about it, and I couldn't uh, get anybody that would tell me the truth. Nobody wanted to say they'd, uh, you know, gone to the grocery store to get laid. So um, uh, I made up a young woman, Mary Ann Singleton, and created a a scenario, basically. And the editors at the Pacific Sun said, why don't you just keep following her? And that's what I did, and that's how Marianne Singleton was born. That's how Michael Tolliver, the gay character, was initially born, because she tried to pick him up at the grocery store. And... uh, and I realized I was on to something. Charles McCabe, who was the venerable old essayist at the Chronicle, championed me—a kind of amazing thing in and of itself—because he was very old-timey, hard-drinking Irishman with a very misogynistic and certainly a homophobic streak. Um, and yet he liked what I was doing and and uh, thought it would work for the Chronicle, and he got me into interview with him.
0: One of the things that I was thinking too is that. The pacing of these stories is a really interesting uh, pacing all throughout your writing career. These are short, kind of encapsulated stories that weave in and out. And I think that more than a literary novel or a thriller or anything, they reflect the pace of our lives today and the way we experience our lives, which is why they are, are so striking. Well, they're sort of blogs, aren't they, really?
1: They were <laughs> blogs before they were blogs. You know, that's true, isn't it? And I and I shifted around uh, uh, depending on how I was feeling on a given day. If uh, if I was feeling really cynical, I could be Mona Ramsey. If I had a sort of, oh, woe is me, romantic thing going on, I could be Michael. Uh, almost all of the characters, really, with the possible exception of Mrs. Madrigal, who's always been a little bit wiser than I am, uh, were, were drawn from from my own life. Um, As far as the pacing is concerned, it was something that sort of arose instinctively after a while. I think I was sort of wiring my computer to figure out how something could work in a self-contained unit uh, in 800 words, and then be part of a larger unit that was the novel itself, and then at the end, be part of the, the nine novel sequence, and have everything covered. I actually allowed for certain uh, things to occur. I, I, I planted a clue in 1989 in my novel Sure You that was not revealed until uh, four, five or six years ago when Marianne and Autumn came out. It was basically a, a secret that had been kept for 20 years, and I had just waited for the penny to drop. And it was tremendously satisfying to give readers that... Uh, oh, no moment, you know, and realized that I had been holding it in front of their face all along. People who sit now and read all nine novels and work their way through it are amazed that it it works that way, but uh, I, uh, I did uh, set that trap.
0: I think this reflects a deep, uh, I think maybe a prose understanding of the human heart, that it's not just... Understanding the psychology, most of us have some understanding of how people work. We can make a model of them in our minds. But I think when you do what you do, which is to create people and write about them in that way, that that, the language itself takes hold. Um, I don't know. (laughs) That's an
1: interesting theory. It might be true. I really don't know. something I learned to do after a while, and then it just was instinctive. Um, I, I, I it's very hard to describe. And if I had set out to do this, it would never have happened. If I had said to myself, all right, now just settle back because you're going to write a story that's going to take 40 years, <laughs> oh, not, never would that have happened. Uh, at the beginning, I was just glad to get out alive after the first year's worth of columns, um, not all of the daily columns are in the novels because I had a shot at uh, rearranging them before they went into the novel form. So I could look cleverer than I was, but I I knew what had to be done. I knew the shape it had to take.
0: Well, you mentioned uh, just a minute ago about uh, the secrets, and I think that's something that you do very well is to observe the secrets we hold within our hearts and, and that we keep from one another. And we see that in the the latest novel mm. um, where there are just little things that we don't choose to tell, don't choose to tell. And those little things can sometimes acquire a mass like a, a, a tiny rock that rolls downhill and becomes yeah. a giant boulder.
1: Yeah, I know that about myself. Mm-hmm. I'm not a ter- tremendously confrontational person. I even... Uh, when I finally came out to my parents, I did it in Tales of the City. I did it through a fictional character. They knew that I was talking about myself, but that's how I did it. I I, uh, <clears throat> I tend to be a people pleaser, and uh, that means that I don't always say what's on my mind, and some of my best characters do that very thing. Uh, Marianne Singleton, uh, Laura Linney, understood instinctively because... She's very much that kind of a person too. That's why we're so close as friends after all these years. When uh, *Tales of the City* was made into a uh, a miniseries uh, uh, that aired on PBS, uh, Laura just jumped right on that character, Marianne, because she she got her, she understood her. And uh, to this day, she and I could look across a room, a crowded room, and there'll be a little twinkle there, and I'll know exactly what she's thinking, and she'll know what I'm thinking, and neither one of us is voicing it. She paid me a huge compliment by the way by um she had a baby this year um uh her 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 first her only baby really she was a year a, a week away from 50 when the baby was born and uh she called me up from uh the hospital room with her husband and told me that the baby's middle name was Armistead and wow. uh that's Isn't pretty overwhelming that's for a writer that's about as sweet as it gets you make up a character this brilliant actress comes along who goes on to be internationally recognized and then she has a baby and names it after you i mean i i couldn't have written that myself
0: uh i think you have
1: actually <laughs> <laughs> uh, we celebrated his first birthday last week by the way oh, in con- brooklyn i was ve- it was very satisfying
0: congratulations isn't that that's so nice you know um this your latest novel, for all that the the novels you've written before now read like historical fiction. Your latest novel includes some historical fiction.
1: Yes, that was a great deal of fun. I I actually take uh, the readers back to to Anna Madrigal's boyhood. She of course is a transgender character, and so I thought let's look at her when she was a teenage boy in Winnemucca, Nevada, and her mother ran the local brothel, and. uh I loved that experience. For once I wasn't trying to snatch the things around me but going into the into the world of the past. And uh that meant research uh the internet's very useful for that by the way. I could actually google a uh, 1930s uh, uh brothel menu. I think actually I googled whorehouse menu. Um and there it was. It popped up uh, the things, the, the items that were available
0: if somebody went to
1: a brothel in the 1930s.
0: Well, it's so remarkable. And this leads me to a similarity between that section and all the, the rest of your writing is that I think one of the things you are most effective at is world building. Even And it's really hard. It's a little bit, I think, easier to do when you're writing a historical piece because you're, it's all separate. We know there's this different time or something. But even in your older work, I mean, you build that world of San Francisco in the 70s so beautifully in 80s, so beautifully imperfect. We can go back there. And that's why it seems like historical fiction.
1: Um, I don't know. I guess I've had always had an eye for those particular details. I got a pet rock into the—a <laughs> mood ring. I got a mood ring into the first paragraph of of uh, Tales of the City. And now when people talk about the 70s, they almost invariably bring up the pet rock and the mood ring.
0: Well, I remember those. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, which did you have?
0: Uh, <laughs> neither. I think we—I I was a bit too young for that,
1: but— when the uh yes, you were, <laughs> I don't know why I asked uh, but when we when we made a musical out of uh, Tales of the city at a c t uh, Jeff Witty, our librettist, gave everybody his gift to the cast on opening night was a mood ring, and we all ran around having a glorious time
0: <laughs> figuring out what color our mood ring was, you know, you mentioned the adaptation of the the first three books. That leaves six books left to do, and these kind of miniseries are making a being done again in a beautiful manner. They I'm, are, yeah. I'm hoping that... Uh, is there, uh, me too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's been there's been a noise. Uh-huh. I, I can say that much. There's been a noise about it, about starting all over again, and uh, and working their way through. In many ways, that breaks my heart because there are actors that so identified with those characters mm-hmm. um, who are now. Forgive me, but too old to play the characters. And uh, so we'd have to start over again. But I, I think we could do that. And um, and there are no restrictions now in the way that there were uh, in the old days in terms of uh, actually showing people uh, the way they behave in bed with each other, for instance. If you remember, uh, KQED came under huge fire because from the American Family Association, a nasty organization that's still out there being nasty, um, because they they disapproved of essentially very tame kissing scene between two men in, in a car. It was like an old-time three-strip technicolor romantic scene, but it was radical because you didn't see that in those days. You did not see people of the same sex kissing romantically. And um, uh, so we'd have a lot more freedom and... Uh, I don't think we'd go in any different directions because I tried very much not to compromise myself while I was writing, even though that was tough at the Chronicle. <laughs> uh, they'd say, we can't put that in. And I'd write around it. I'd find ways to sort of suggest something but not show it outright.
0: Well, I think, too, um, your work has a really interesting weight to it. On one hand... When we read this, we re- realize we're reading something that's really probes deep into uh, America in a particular time, in a particular place, and it gets it does really well. It doesn't read like something that's weighty. It reads like something that's fun and engaging. And I think that kind of uh, tension between those two is, A, what makes these things kind of page-turners, but also makes them uh, eternally uh, – Meaningful and relevant.
1: I hope so. That's oh, that's nice to hear. I I had to, you know, I had I was deathly afraid of losing their attention in the newspaper. <laughs> I guess, yeah. <laughs> so I had, to, I thought they have to come back the next day for more, and I have to find a way to do that. And that meant writing a souffle, as it were, a souffle with some good stuff in it, but a souffle, nonetheless. Mm. And I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't put anything in that didn't um carry the story forward and set the scene and uh and keep you involved.
0: Now uh in, in your latest book we, we meet Anna Madrigal and she she's elderly and and I think one of the things I think that's really interesting is uh an observation uh that uh Shauna makes is that she's um at one point Shauna says that she's kind of packing up, mm. and I thought that that was a really interesting perception of how people, you know, deal with growing old in America mm. because we can do so with comfort now.
1: There's actually a train metaphor that carries all the way through the novel, mm-hmm. much to my surprise. I didn't realize it until I arrived at the last one, but um, where she says she would, she doesn't want a fuss made, but she wouldn't mind a little company at the station. Mm-hmm. To, to wave her goodbye and and yes, she's she's fully aware that it's time to go, and she's trying to figure out the best way to do it
0: Well, well too, I think that this gets to something that I think you articulate very well in this book that aging is a, it's a mean it's a simplification. That that's another way that is put earlier in the novel. And I think that that's a really quite great way of approaching it. That's something that we can do. And I mm. think that that's something that you articulate very well without ever, I mean, we just see it
1: happen. Yes, in the, in the first uh, chapter, um, Jake, her caretaker, says she can't have any candles in the house anymore <laughs> <laughs> because he'll go away and find her asleep. And it's, uh, as she says, dripping off the... Tabletop like a dolly clock, uh, and and she and he so he brings her this thing from Pottery Barn that that's you know, the little switch, the little fake candle thing, and she has to talk herself into thinking that's okay, um, and and the simplification uh, she remembers her daughter Mona who was very much into Zen thought and and saying you know you could you can think of it as uh, simplification and you don't have to think of it as deprivation. It's just whittling life down to the barest necessities and still being comfortable in your skin. And she's always been able to do that. And she always reminds me to do it, uh, to not let, not be overwhelmed by petty detail.
0: You know, it's interesting because what you're saying is, is that you've created a character that you can learn from and and that's an interesting mm. externalization of of your own of what you are deep within yourself.
1: Yes, I must know what she knows, but <laughs> I just don't think of it very often, I suppose.
0: You have to you've created
1: her to tell you. I've created her to tell me. Um and uh, uh and she has at almost every turn. It's rather amazing.
0: In in this book, uh Anna uh, ends up going to Burning Man. Now, this is a this is an interesting excursion for her and I, I'm guessing it's an excursion you took yourself. It is. It is. Um
1: of course she doesn't get to Burning Man and well, we won't get into that, but she she doesn't think she's going to Burning Man at the beginning. She thinks she's just going to Winnemucca, mm-hmm. her childhood home where she's got some business that she has to settle up. Some a, a, a source of guilt for her. Mm-hmm. And I think most people don't think of Mrs. Madrigal as guilty at all, but she's got a big one. Mm. And uh, yes, my uh, it helps when, when you're... I'm 70 now. My my uh, my husband, Chris, is 28 years younger, and he was the one that said, come on, we're going to go. We're just going to go. He'd been twice before to Burning Man. And I was went in kicking and screaming. I thought, I don't want dust and noise and, you know, earplugs at night to keep the raves from invading uh, the room. And um, he bribed me with an RV. We took an RV. It doesn't keep the dust out, I Mm -hmm. might add. Uh, And I was very grumpy about it until I got there and saw this vision I describe it in the novel as being a Fellini carnival on Mars. I love that. <laughs> I, I never. It's only. It's the only thing I could think of that could possibly capture this completely otherworldly atmosphere. And then a lot of people really doing their best to be kind and open to each other. And we don't get that much in life. And there really is an effort when you consider that there are sixty thousand people there, and everybody's in in the mood to be open and um uh, and loving. Um, it's pretty amazing. And then I fell in love with my sarong. <laughs> <laughs> I was real nervous about the nudity part. And you mm-hmm. don't even think about that after a while. You think, Where's the sarong, you know? Um and uh it it uh it was quite something. I was terrible on the bicycle the first year, so Chris said, Let's why don't you get an adult tricycle the second year. So that's what we did, and we glittered it all up, and and uh, and it was wonderful because you could ride out into the middle of the desert, and then when you got tired, you just stop and sit on your tricycle for a while and watch these uh, apparitions flying by.
0: That sounds wonderful. You know, as you were describing it, as I remember reading it, I was thinking this was not unlike... Uh, transporting the scenes from the very beginning of the series out to the desert and transporting that whole, I think, vibe and culture out to the desert.
1: Well, there are several things that are identical. Uh, my novel, Significant Others, it, it's, to, it's parallel experiences between the old, uh, the old farts at the Bohemian Grove up at the <laughs> Russian River and the Women's Music Festival just down the river, which is a total lesbian feminist experience. And all of them require the same kind of, and so, sometimes oppressive rules in order to exist. And I realized when I was writing about the, uh, the Burning Man that it was very much the same thing, and that the character that went could have my grumpiness about it. I inhabited Didi when the when the when her, her lover insisted that she go to Women Wood, this Women's Music Festival. Dee Dee was the one who said, "Oh, do I really have to?" You know, <clears throat> and. That way, you can take the you can take the readers in to something that they're skeptical about, and seduce them at the same time as, as the characters being seduced.
0: You know, um, the the historical pieces are are really beautiful, and and they're they're also funny and engaging in the exact same way that your current day pieces are. So, um, talk about creating Andy, young Anna, and. and and exploring that character from that perspective—that must have been fun and some somewhat daunting, I would think.
1: A little daunting, but then I realized that I've never been—I've never been failed by my instinct to try to find something in myself that could relate to it. And I know—I know what an alienated sixteen-year-old boy feels like. I wasn't transgender, but I knew what it feel, felt like to be completely on the outside. To have a crush on another boy that could not be vocalized. Um, all of that I, I could use and, and, and to humanize the story and make it as real as possible. Uh, and we had been, we actually went through Winnemucca on our, we t- Chris and I took a road trip all the way across the country with the dog to go to Provincetown one year. And uh, and he said, well, we have to go to Winnemucca. I had never, I'd written about Winnemucca for 35 years and had never seen it. Wow.
0: That must have been fun. Oh, it was very, it was so
1: exciting because I had I had a visual in my head and I thought, oh my god, this would be the road going out to where the whorehouse is. And we followed the road and uh, we discovered all these strange white vehicles with little flags flying on them and, uh, and in this stark, stark desert atmosphere. And it turned out that they, they get gold out of the ground there um, uh, by using terrible Means by cyanide, they they leach it out of the earth. But I've had this whole history of the gold rush in Winnemucca. There was there was one that happened the year that I was writing about, where President Hoover came out and tried to buy up some land real fast, and everybody got suspicious because they thought they were gonna, uh, you know, strike gold. Um, And all of these things, one thing led to another in terms of letting the history. Build itself, and I saw pictures of people from that time, and um, and real, and then told myself, okay, now just relax, because 1936 is eight years before you were born, so it wasn't that long ago, and uh, took it from there, you know.
0: Well, I think that the uh, one thing you you must have found is uh, the serendipity of once you go back into history. Oh, it seems to always turn out that there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening wherever you go, whenever you go. Mm. You can all of a sudden, like, uh, the Hoover Dam is being built, and that. Just That's is... right,
1: and all of those men needed a, a brothel, <laughs> and they came up to Winnemucca to the to the brothel there, um, and it, it could all be it could all be c- connected uh, as long as I was,
0: you know, operating through the lens of of what I knew about it. The Blue Moon, for instance. Now, what it's also nice too the kind of pacing back and forth between the historical journey and the journey that that uh, Anna and her family are making. So, uh, when you were writing this, were you going back and forth, or were you, did you write one narrative? I went back and forth. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That must have been.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. It was fun. It was very exhilarating. It was like time travel, and uh, with with breaks, you know. <laughs> uh,
0: now when you um created this uh this whole historical backstory I would like you to talk about um creating the other characters in there who you know are not necessarily a part of the present day saga but um applying the sensibilities that you've developed for over all these years to these new a new set of characters I mean I'm hmm. wondering uh Go for it Armistead. Let's see. Let's have some more historical fiction from you.
1: Oh, thank you. I mean, I really did enjoy it. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Lasco, who's the Basque boy that uh, mm-hmm. that young Andy falls in love with. Um, grew out of the fact that I knew that there were there were lots of Basque people living in that part of the world. There're Basque restaurants in 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 the Nevada desert. They came out initially to as sheep herders and uh when that didn't uh, when that industry died, um, they, they started opening the restaurants because they had been cooking for the, the sheep herders during that time. Uh, and that became what they did. There was a Basque restaurant here in San Francisco. When I first got here, I was fascinated by it. So I did a lot of research about uh, the Basques. I looked up, I spent a long time with, you can actually Google Basque baby names. Really? And, yeah. <clears throat> well, you have some great names for these people. Yeah, some of them are very very bizarre and I tried to imagine what would it be like to be you know, this young woman working in this restaurant who had that name. Um I'm trying to think of who the others were, but um uh most of them just kind of appeared and uh let me know who they were.
0: You know, you also um continue with your journalistic uh tendencies in this book in that you weave in Bits of stuff out of the headlines, and and we have a a, a fellow, you know, a, the, you mentioned one of the people who's uh, searching for a cure for queer. <laughs> These kind of this uh, nonsensical nonsensical pseudo psychiatry clinics.
1: That's that's part of my Mormon,
0: yeah. Oh, character. The, There's <laughs> a
1: Mormon kid who actually. Um, keeps reappearing over the last three novels and mm-hmm. and in his last scene naked in the desert <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to give him my happy ending um uh but yes he had uh i used just what present day thing that mm-hmm. the f- actually are have been until recently most states are now outlawing this ridiculous reparative therapy thing some of them involve the 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 psychologist or the Therapist or whatever they call themselves, holding, holding the 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 Gabe kid in a <clears throat> in such a way as to pretend to be a father and sort of cuddle with the kid. Uh, Marcus Bachman, Michelle Bachman's husband has has that very therapy in a mall somewhere in Mini Minnesota. It's pre- preposterous that we've taken this long to start outlawing this and laughing about it, um, but. Um, yeah, there was a lot of things that, uh, and, and as far as the 1936 is concerned, mm-hmm. I discovered uh, that the Rexall train...
0: Oh, I forgot about the Rexall train. It's, <laughs> I loved the Rexall train. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just found, I was, a lot of this happened because I would Google something, and I'd think, well, uh-huh. what was the drugstore in Winnemucca? And I found a place called Eagle Drugs. It was a Rexall thing, and I did 1936 uh, Rexall, and found out there was this lavish art deco train that went through all of the states as it turns out all but one um, and had all their products on display in the various train cars and they had air conditioning which was quite a luxury in 1936 you could actually leave your hot little town and be in this cool um you know sort of art deco sort of streamlined environment and look at all their uh, their products like chocolate covered cherries and each of the each of the uh, Train cars was named after a different Rexall product, so all all of that came <clears throat> with research on the internet.
0: Now, you you certainly didn't need research on the internet to plot the the character arc of of Anna Madrigal, but I I think that um you do. Set, it's so beautifully done. And I'm wondering how long, and it seems like this must have been a kind of thing that where you might have been like uh, tearing up at your, uh, while you type. I was, yeah.
1: I was. I wanted to make the point, without giving it away here, but I wanted to make the point that transgender kids when they're growing up don't necessarily feel gay, and that a gay kid could mistake their outsiderdom for their particular kind of queerness and how complicated that could get um uh uh the uh anna i was moved by andy from the beginning i first time i you know the 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 the, the hooker down the hall that takes her under his wing mm-hmm. margaret the first time she gives him a, she gives him a 16th birthday present which is a dress that she made for him because she knows she's the only one around that knows and just the act of describing him putting on that dress and feeling you know complete for the first time was very moving to me. The dress, by the way, I found on eBay, really a period dress with every description I'm not good at, at couture, so i I just use the details from the I still have it I still have the printout of the the dress and it was it was a, a wonderful device for me while i was while I was writing.
0: You know, um, this strikes me, too, is that you talk in in this book about uh, both halves of of all of us. And I think that this is something, obviously, a theme that you've been dealing with for grappling with for 40 years. And it's so fascinating because as you've been grappling with it, so have we as a society. And I think that you've Hmm. done a good job of being, you know, uh, the day after tomorrow ahead of us.
1: Well, uh, <laughs> I'm. I, I, I have to thank you one more time. I really do appreciate that. I think you know. Sometimes I've been grappling with it, and other times I've just trying to be a writer because basically the act of writing is a transgender act.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's I've never you had to, thought about. You have that. to be
1: everybody if you're going to write, at uh-huh. least unless you're really going to just, I don't know, be Zane Grey or something. Um, you you have to you have to know how to get into everyone's skin and that that's uh that's imagining um gender shifts
0: now uh when you do this put yourself into these into this you know swath of characters um it's a little bit like acting do you find yourself like does it take you a while to get into somebody's voice or somebody's scene? Um, do you have Do you warm yourself up by reading other passages or?
1: Um, yeah, that's a that's a good question. It's a little nerve wracking at first. It's a little nerve wracking uh, until you find it, and then it's there, and then you base it on what you've written before. Uh, but yes, it's it's nerve wracking finding that voice. Um, Sometimes it can be my voice completely and nobody even notices. I wrote a novel about 20 years ago called Maybe the Moon Mm -hmm. that was inspired by a a, a friend of mine who was a dwarf actress. She ended up playing E.T. in the film. She's wearing the suit of E.T. in some of the crucial scenes. And when I first met her, I was was charmed by her because she was so funny, but she was the shortest woman in the world and I was self-conscious around her. I was nervous and I thought... That's the best indicator you should make this a character. If it's, some, if it's a new challenge for you, then go for it and do it. I did the same thing eight years ago with Jake Greenleaf, the trans man character. A friend of mine told me about going to a, a gay bar south of Market and talking to some cute guy for about half the evening before he realized that this was a trans, somebody told him rather maliciously that this was a trans man and i I thought, "How on earth am I going to write about that? How am I going to write a sex scene between a gay man and a man with with no penis? How am I going to do that and and uh and the answer to it was by imagin letting my character be the tender, sweet guy that he is, the gay character and and understanding trying to understand who this other person is and how a friendship grows out of that and eventually, because some trans uh fans started writing and saying, We love Jake, but come on, can he have a love life? Well Michael didn't have much of one in the beginning, in the early days. And but I thought, yeah, I'm, I need to I need to f- get a love life for him. So that happens in that happens in uh the days of Anna Madrigal.
0: He's such a charming character. He's he's really sweet. I love the at the very beginning where um she says where she um describes him as a child. Yeah. Well, I, he is. He is to her too. Yeah, but I think that that captures uh, both both characters in one in one word, and that's a that's a really a powerful achievement. Thank you. <laughs> um, having you you finished these books, I have. Yes. <laughs> what do we? What comes
1: next? I'm uh, plugging away at a memoir. My, both my publishers in Britain and here have asked for one. Uh, I'm not quite sure ex- exactly how. It's not going to be a thorough. It's not going to be like an autobiography. It's going to be vignettes. It'll be like Tales of the City, but tales of my internal city. I mean, it'll be <laughs> that's a crowded city. <laughs> little moments. Yes, it is. It's been <laughs> a busy one. I've been a lot of. Uh, I've been a lot of people had a lot of lives in this lifetime because I was very. Had a very conservative upbringing in North Carolina, and uh, so um, I'm going to try to make that journey. I've written a few, a few pieces that I've been trying out in public. Um, I'll probably do that uh, on some of the readings on this on this book tour. I have already actually, um, and uh, uh, it's very satisfying.
0: Talk about reading your pieces aloud. I mean, once again, you're you be you. Uh Reveal yourself to be uh, our uh, modern Dickens.
1: Well, I well certainly he's he's scrounged up a few bucks in his old age <laughs> by ma- by making uh, theatrical appearances, and I wouldn't mind doing that. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I really love uh, being before an audience and telling my stories. It's tremendously satisfying, and it's very useful from the standpoint of writing because you see what works. If you've read it three times and they're not laughing at a particular point or you're boring yourself, and I do, um, then it can go. And you can really hone it to make it something that works. I've always written to be read aloud, I realized. Uh, pretty early on, I realized that. Um, that it That it was – you were meant to hear a voice talking to you. And I think that's why it's so personal to people because they can hear that.
0: I've been speaking with Armistead Maupin. His new book is The Days of Animatrical. Thank you for joining me, Armistead. It's been a pleasure, Rick. Thank you.